listening to Phenomenology Club Radio. Hello and thank you for listening to this audio podcast. I am Buttress, the host of Phenomenology Club, which is an interactive online community of artists and thinkers centered around this content that I create and curate online for us to talk about which is why both our tagline for Phenomenology Club and the subtitle for this discussion series is Talk About It. Most of these uploads are originally streamed live on our YouTube page. If you're interested in interacting with those as they happen live, please go subscribe and turn on the notifications at youtube.com slash phenomenologyclub. And in general, to learn more about our club, what we do, and how you can become a member for only $1 a month, please visit our website at www.phenomenology.club. Thank you for listening. Stay trippy. Hello, and welcome to Phenomenology Club, where we talk about it. This is Talk About It, which is the podcast series. Oh, shit. The podcast series of Phenomenology Club. Um, As some of you may know, Phenomenology Club is, well, it is many things. But firstly, it is exactly what its name suggests. We are a club. We have group-based activities, which I'll tell you about a little bit after I'll tell you about it after this discussion, but um, like I was saying uh, on the post that promoted this upload, I'm sitting here getting ready to upload these audio streams to Spotify, and I realize that I don't even have an introductory episode for what the fuck phenomenology is. And uh, people who are members of our club might have seen this upload video that I this video upload that I did not long ago that is essentially an introduction to phenomenology but the language is kind of flowery it's kind of poetic and weird and I don't think it would work for this Spotify format so I decided that what I would do instead is do a little introduction here for you guys and for anyone who might be listening out there in the Spotify podcast world about what exactly phenomenology is. And if you're interested, come on over to our YouTube channel and watch this flowery, poetic, grandiose, ridiculous video that I made. Because, uh, yeah, much of the content here, not much of the content here, but uh, a good chunk of the content here is actually video uploads. But again, I'll talk more about uh, phenomenology club later for now. I want to talk about what is phenomenology. (laughs) So, I'm basically going to do my best to make the same argument in the same format that I make. It's not an argument. Explanation in the video that I did to the best of my ability. Um... Let me introduce myself real quick as well, since this is technically an introductory episode for anybody unaware. I am Buttress. I am an artiste. I make music. I make films. I have a film degree. (laughs) No, actually, I have a fine arts degree from SAIC, the most pretentious art school in the country, but from which I'm very proud to be an alumni because you know who else went there? You know who else? Huh? Huh? 
Orson Welles. No big deal. That's only uh, one of the best filmmakers to ever live. So I like to think that I got a little bit of his ghost over there. Um, I make videos. I make music. And while I was at SAIC, I took some philosophy courses and quickly fell in love with the practice. Nothing has enriched my life so much as my newfound interest. Well, I wouldn't call it new anymore. But at the time, my newfound interest in philosophy. As someone that comes from a very religious background, um, a very oppressive religious background, where I was basically raised fundamentalist, Christian, evangelical, by the crazy Pentecostals, I was speaking in tongues and shit, Holy Spirit punched me. Not a nice guy. Not a nice guy at all. Um, you know, I like to think about stuff. Thinking deeply about stuff, I think, got me out of the clutches, the dangerous, deadly clutches of fundamentalist Christianity. And when I discovered philosophy, I realized that, hey, I can keep thinking about stuff. That's great. <laughs> so here we are. So we want to talk about phenomenology. Phenomenology, as I've just alluded to, is related to philosophy and i'm speaking to a youtube chat right now by the way i like to read the comments out loud and address them does anybody here have any experience with phenomenology i would love to hear what it is if you have any or what your background in philosophy is if you have any some of our members of our club or even philosophy students we got a we got a wide range of people with all sorts of different exposures to philosophical knowledge with all sorts of different backgrounds. But anyway, so phenomenology is related to philosophy. And I would say that pretty much everybody knows that within philosophy, there's different schools of philosophy, right? There's different areas of specialized interest in philosophy. And phenomenology, I think, is really unique because phenomenology is not a school of philosophy. Phenomenology is a mode, a method, a way to do philosophy. <laughs> Why do these messages keep getting retracted? Is that YouTube censoring us? Because I will not stand for that. Anyway, so... Um, any of you who listen to this channel knows that um, I speak often about how philosophy is ultimately sort of just language games, right? And this is famously put forward by Wittgenstein, notorious hater of women. Blah. But anyway, um, this is very true, and this, I think, is not necessarily relevant to an understanding of phenomenology, but I approach it sort of from this understanding. I like to introduce people to it this way, because philosophy has this age-old kind of problem, and I feel like phenomenology exists to address a problem and a need that we see when considering the history of philosophy and its shortcomings. Phenomenology is a really recent philosophy. It's from the early 20... I'm going to get my centuries mixed up. 
20th century. Late? No, shit. 20th century. Early 20th century. Yes, that's correct. And uh, it's invented, quote unquote, by this man named Edmund Husserl. And Edmund Husserl is a mathematician. He comes from a very rigorous school of academic practice. And basically, Husserl creates phenomenology to address this need I'm talking about. And what is this need that I'm talking about in philosophy? Essentially, the problem with philosophy is what I just said a moment ago, that it is ultimately kind of these never-ending language games. Like, when you consider the most earliest philosophers, at least in the Western tradition, Socrates and Plato and, well, Aristotle less so, but what kinds of questions are people like Socrates asking, you know? What is virtue? What is morality? What is truth? How can you tell two bumblebees apart? <laughs> and all of these questions really are uh, the, the way that they're framed. This is kind of a framing that philosophy sort of assumes for itself and carries on for centuries. This approach to philosophy as if we could potentially uncover truths, you know, that truths exist and we must uncover them, right? We have to find what virtue is. We have to find what truth is. We have to find what morality is. As if these concepts exist external to us. Not that this is said explicitly, but this is sort of the assumed mode of how a lot of philosophy is done. Less so as time goes on. But historically, you know, there's this attitude in philosophy almost that truths exist. We just have to find them like fucking Dora the Explorer. We're on a fucking mission and we're going to find those truths, right? But clearly, clearly, we all know as members of a 21st century society that truths don't really exist external to us right truths are established with our language and truths are ultimately mutable and we are in control of truth and knowledge because even if we're describing things that may exist externally to us you know it's definitely true that if we want to create systems of language and of logic that are internally consistent, and it is this consistency that creates truth in the first place, I mean, what does truth mean except that it's logically consistent, right? Then we have to take on this responsibility boldly. My brothers, my sisters, we have to recognize that it is up to us to make the best truths, the most logically consistent truths, and the most useful systems of logic to begin with, you know. Because this is the purpose of philosophy and of creating anything, in my opinion. And my opinion's correct. That there has to be some sort of usefulness. Otherwise, what is the fucking point? We could sit here and jack off together about what is virtue all fucking day long. What is morality? What is this? What is that? But the only way we're going to advance out of these semantic loopholes and these fucking language games is if we make a decision 
because decisions are necessary if we want to establish language and definitions at all and use them, put them into some sort of practical usage, you know, like, do you want to, you can think of it almost as like, what did, what did this look like before humans had even decided on a system of language, you know, how long did people sit around and argue, I don't want to call it red, I want to call it bleh, I bleh. Because it sounds better and it's more fun. And I, when I look at this, I feel like bleh. So let's call it bleh instead of red, right? <laughs> That's essentially what we're doing in a lot of these philosophical discussions when we argue about things like consciousness, for example. This is, this is a topic I like to avoid entirely because I feel like all it is is a bunch of people sitting around like, consciousness isn't that, it's this, it's bleh. No, it's red. No, it's that. Shut up. I don't care. I'm not even going to engage in this with you if you're going to insist I sit here and hear about all your fucking ideas on consciousness. I would rather just find what we already agree on mutually and then use what we agree on mutually to advance. So, anyway, I digress. The point of phenomenology is to advance us out of these language games into usefulness into giving philosophy something useful and maximizing the potential of philosophy to be useful because philosophy, I think, and Husserl thinks, especially when he said that it is the eternal work of humanity to reason, that philosophy is necessary in just about everything because there is a philosophy of everything. There's a philosophy of math, a philosophy of biology, a philosophy of politics, a philosophy of, excuse me, everything. So if you believe this and believe that philosophy is useful, then you almost see it as a sense of duty, you know, because otherwise I think philosophy will just disappear into the annals of creative writing. And this has already begun to happen, in my opinion. I mean, look how much... I went to a Christian school. I don't know about you guys. But I had to read so much fucking fiction. I never even had to read one work of philosophy in all of my what? How long are we in school? 15 years or some shit? 12 years? I don't know. I don't know how to count. Why, why did I have to read, like, so much fucking... So many fucking poems? I had to read the Bible front to back. Which is ridiculous. I mean, that was my rare experience. But why didn't I have to read any works of philosophy? And when you go to certain bookstores, you see philosophy is grouped with like, you know, chicken soup for the fucking soul and shit. It's a joke. It's a fucking joke. Philosophy is much more important. But philosophy is important as a practice. I wouldn't even say as a historical canon of work. It is necessarily important. It's important as a practice. So... This is the platform for why phenomenology exists, okay? To address a need and to maximize the potential of philosophy. So let's talk about it. What the fuck is phenomenology? I'll tell you. So, firstly, let's look at this word, phenomenology. It comes from... Two separate root words from the ancient Greek. Phenomena, meaning 
that which appears, and logos, which means reason, and the ology suffix is essentially meaning here, the study of. The study of that which appears. What? What is necessary, my brothers, my sisters? What is necessary for a thing to appear? Anybody? What is required for a thing to appear? No answers, I will tell you. What is necessary for a thing to appear is an observer. Nothing can appear unless there is an observer for it to appear to, right? Otherwise, nothing is appearing to anybody. Even if a thing appears spontaneously out of whatever conditions, you know, it just zaps into existence. You might say it appears out of nowhere. But you're just using poetic, flowery language. It is not literally appearing to anybody if there is no one to observe it. And the observer... Oh, you said that? I'm sorry, I missed it. A plus for Vibrock. The observer is you. And it is me. We are observing everything that appears to us. Am I right? And this is the root of all experience, right? I know nothing except that I seem, I appear to exist as an observer in a perceptible reality. Perceptible being these things that appear to me in my phenomena of experience. And this is where phenomenology begins and why it's called the study of that which appears. Because Husserl, like I said, was a mathematician. He comes from this very rigorous school of study. He wants to maximize the potential of philosophy and he wants to do this by almost creating a quote-unquote standardized approach to doing it, which is why we call it a method and not a school of philosophy. It's a way to do it. And Husserl recognizes that if we want to do this to create a rigorous school of philosophical practice, not a school, I'm sorry, look, I'm fucking up with my language, a rigorous approach to doing philosophy, we have to start at what is most essential or what appears the most essential to the best of our understanding, which is finite and constructed by ourselves. <laughs> oh, you made it. We were, oh, you missed quite a bit, but it's okay. Stay with us. Stay with us. You can listen to the beginning later. 
Aaron, question, has phenomenology made you happier? Yes, much, much happier, but I'll tell you about that later. I'll give my personal testimony later. Please remind me if I forget. Anyways, so, we are starting from the ground zero of all knowing. Because philosophy is very much a study and an inquiry into how we know things, am I wrong? Or how we think we know things. Or how we think we should come up with useful systems to talk about how we know things. Am I right? (laughs) So, we're starting from perception. Because we cannot access anything outside of our perception. And... If you Google for yourself phenomenology, what does it mean? I believe that the answer is phenomenology is the study of the structures of conscious experience from the first person perspective. And this sounds very redundant, right? Because we can't ever exit our first person perspective. So why is this specified, you know? And... I think when we think about things like perspective, subjectivity, perception, we start to think about like the matrix and the simulation and Rene Descartes and all this, you know, oh, I can't access these external modes of knowing if they exist, I can never step outside of my first person perspective, what do I do? Is this what phenomenology aims to address, aims to break us out of this subjective mode and find some sort of true objectivity or something, you know? Is phenomenology concerned with trying to break us out of the matrix, trying to establish whether or not this is a matrix, any of this? No, no it is not. Phenomenology does not treat this, I don't want to call it an anomaly or a paradox, but this state of observable conditions as a thing to be overcome. As phenomenologists, we don't desire to break out of our first person perspective. Because why would you? I mean, there's no fucking point. I only exist as this perceptive being that experiences all perception through my first person lens, you know? This is not necessarily a problem. It poses a problem for many other philosophers, philosophers that precede Husserl, and come after him but we are not going to treat this as a problem because it isn't a problem unless you make it one and we are deciding not to do that because it doesn't feel like a fucking problem but clearly in creating some sort of comprehensive philosophy one that's truly rigorous and addresses all matters of knowing in the most coherent cohesive way we still have to start from this premise right so this is why phenomenology is concerned with our first-person perspective. It's not to become engaged in solipsism and just, like, study ourselves. It's not a study of ourselves, necessarily. It's an approach to doing philosophy that's rooted in the knowledge and starts at the at this foundational idea that nothing is experienced outside of myself, you know? But because this is true, it's not us then saying, well, we're going to study ourselves. No, we're trying to study what appears to us externally. Because this is the point of creating language and philosophy in general, right? To reach out. I'm trying to reach out to you. And you're trying to reach out to me. We're trying to reach out to these relative objects of our experience in the external world and describe them with language and philosophy 
in ways that demonstrate some sort of usefulness with the purpose of ultimately communicating to each other and to ourselves ideas, you know, ideas that we create with language. And these ideas describe our experience. All of language and all of philosophy is constructed to describe this first person perspective, right? And Husserl um, believed that, well, let me not get ahead of myself. No, I will tell you. I was just talking about how we are at all times trying to reach out, right? Husserl believed this very much. Husserl, in thinking about perception and what, what could be said about it, comes up with this framework for his phenomenology where basically he says that the fundamental property of all conscious experience and all perception is this reaching outness, this directedness. To Husserl, consciousness always had a goal, you know. Your consciousness is at all times making something the focus of its own observations, right? It's zooming around the room like a fucking radar. And so in Husserl's phenomenology, and I say this because phenomenology, like I said, it's not, it, it's trying to be scientific and in trying to be scientific, it's open to all sorts of different things. And there are people who have come after Husserl, like his student Heidegger, who was a Nazi, Heidegger, not nice. His phenomenology looks totally different than Husserl's and his is actually more famous. We prefer Husserl here, but we're not going to talk about Heidegger. Heidegger had his own great ideas. Whatever, even though you're a Nazi, boy. Anyway, so there's all different kinds of phenomenologies. And we encourage free thinking. And Husserl would encourage this as well. You know, your philosophy, your way of doing phenomenology doesn't necessarily need to be his. My approach to phenomenology is not identical to Husserl's either but to be historical for a second Husserl structured all of his phenomenology around this idea that consciousness always has some sort of directedness and he called that intentionality and I'm approaching on 25 minutes here I'm not going to go too long basically phenomenology has in Husserl's phenomenology too um there's all sorts of vocabulary that's already been established and rules, suggestions, all sorts of pretty rigorous stuff that tells us how to do phenomenology in the first place. And what I'm going to do is basically give you the most summary introduction to how you can begin thinking about these ideas if you want to. And as this channel continues... Um, we're going to go further and further into the specifics of Husserl's phenomenology and also Heidegger's phenomenology. Um, by the way, join our book club. If you're not a member, we're actually getting close to Husserl. We've been going through Western philosophy chronologically. We do readings that are only, uh, they're 25 pages or less. And we meet every two weeks or longer recently. Sorry. But um, we're on to Hegel next, and then Husserl. But anyway, Husserl, the most introductory 
introductory summary I'm going to try to give you right now for how Husserl believes you can do phenomenology right at home, right at home. So Husserl came up with a set of rules, essentially, for how to do phenomenology, and it's called the epoche. An epoche is a word that was heavily employed by the ancient Greek skeptics that basically just means suspension of judgment. Husserl believed that as we go about trying to establish a science of knowing, essentially, because this is what philosophy already aims to be, that if we want to do this in the most rigorous way possible, recognizing that we are the foundations of all knowledge because we create it and everything is experienced through our perception that we should try our best to suspend everything that we think we already know about our external surroundings if we want new possibilities to present themselves to us. So, to give you a basic list of what I wrote it here, let me find it. By the way, I've been reading this amazing book called um, Experimental Phenomenology by Don Ide. It's basically an introduction to phenomenology. It's great. Don Ide is still alive. I believe he's like 80 years old or something. Um, And he teaches at a school in Staten Island. I want to go see him speak sometime. But anyway, I've been reading this book and it's been helping me um, try to come up with more useful ways to talk about phenomenology trying to find this list I'm in I employ some of his language so I wanted to to put that out there shit where's my where's my oh no where's my list sorry guys my fucking list I screen capped it I'm gonna just keep oh here we go alright And I'll post it somewhere for you as well, if you want to see it. Anyone who's a member of our club, you get free access to the charts and study materials on the website. www.phenomenology.club Oh, so here's my notes. Phenomenology. I'm just looking at this together. I'm looking at this for the first time in a minute. I wrote this down. The science of phenomena is distinct from that of the nature of being. And then I wrote down the definition of science. The intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. Oh yeah, this is something I want to talk about, just touch on real briefly before I go into telling you how to do phenomenology right from your very home. This is important. Phenomenology essentially mirrors the scientific method. And what is the scientific method? And how does it mirror it? Basically, science really is very simple. And science at its most skeletal is only a philosophy, right? Science has all types of empirical and evidence-based data. There's so much data in the school, the lexicon of science and natural science. But at its most baseline, when we're talking about how to do science, it's based really on and established based on only philosophical principles. And how science works is basically 
there is an observer, which is you and me, and the observer makes something the object of their focus, right? The scientist makes something the object of their inquiry. And then, through a method of testing, they try to reach some sort of conclusion about that thing that is the object of their focus. And the way that we do these kinds of tests are established with philosophical criteria. A great example is the principle of repeatability. This idea that for a thing to be considered scientifically valid, you have to be able to do it more than once, you know? Like if I fucking throw an apple on the ground and a poof of yellow smoke happens, I can't be like, look, it's science. I made the yellow smoke happen if I just throw the apple at the ground. No, I have to repeat this and have peers review this and basically validate my scientific findings. And if I can't repeat this apple yellow <laughs> poof of smoke experiment, everyone's going to tell me to go fuck myself for good reason, right? And this is purely a philosophical idea. This idea that if we want to say a thing is true, we should probably be able to do it more than once. Otherwise, I mean, what kind of insight does being able to do this thing once give us? Also, the idea that there should be other scientists present, or at least that can review my work and repeat the experiments at their home, you know. And these things seem very obvious, but, like, this principle of re repeatability didn't even become integrated into, like, Western scientific practice, I believe, until, like, the 17th century, you know, which is crazy. You would think that it would be older. It seems so obvious, but I think we take this for granted, you know. So with phenomenology, basically, Husserl is doing, he's trying to create a philosophy that mirrors this scientific method. And I just alluded to how phenomenology does this, you know. We recognize that we are the observers, that there is going to be a focus of our observations, and that we should test these observations. And we're going to do that by doing things like measuring how they change in our own perception, how they may be different to other people's perceptions, to our peers, whether or not things are repeatable, especially in philosophy. I mean, a theory of repeatability, can you can easily draw a corollary with ideas of like, well, does the same apply in this situation? What if the situation were this? Would the same thing be true or applicable? You understand me? So I just wanted to say that one more time. This is how phenomenology is scientific and why it calls itself, in many instances, a science of phenomena, a philosophical science of phenomena. And this is also the root of all science uh, and the, the word itself, empiricism. You know, natural science is empirical. And empiricism just means the theory that all knowledge is derived from sense experience, that which is observable. Anyway, I ranted enough. Let me give you a summary real quick for how we do phenomenology so you can start doing it right at home, right, right now. You can do it right now after this video. Holy shit, isn't that amazing? Can you fucking wait? So, Husserl has the epoche, 
which I just said, ancient Greek word meaning suspension of judgment. How do we do it, Husserl? Tell us. Number one, the first way we're going to do phenomenology is to simply attend to phenomena. (laughs) That's it. What we're going to do is firstly observe and we're going to do our best to consciously think about how we're observing it you know what is in front of me me personally i'm staring at a wall right a lot of people would not put too much thought into this experience but the more you sit and stare at the wall and think about yourself staring at the wall i begin to think things like How can I even perceive that the wall is a few feet in front of me, you know? If you took a photographic image of my vision right now, it would appear 2D, right? Like a cartoon. What is enabling me to experience this wall as distinct phenomena? And what about all these things in my peripheral vision? I mean, there's speakers to either side of me. How can I, I feel like very confident in my sense of being and location and space right now. Like, how is that? What is it about my literal physiology that allows me to perceive all these objects as distinct phenomena? You know, there's pictures hanging on my wall. Why can I recognize that all of these framed objects are separate, distinct phenomena? I could pick one up. I can easily identify one and pick it up and move it around. Isn't that crazy? If anything's in front of you, pick it up and move it. Holy shit. That was amazing. Oh my God. Like, how the fuck did I just do that? Are you kidding me? I just changed my entire surroundings by picking it up and putting it down. What the fuck? I can't fucking believe it. Isn't that amazing? Holy shit. What? Oh, sorry. I'm getting excited. I'm being loud. It's late. So anyway, we're going to attend to phenomena. Another example. I'm not just experiencing things visually. I also have to consider, like, there's a slight hum to the left of me coming from my refrigerator. Is that affecting my perception? We know science has let us know that there's things like frequencies that make people feel uneasy that make them feel sick that make them do this or that what about that what about that it's crazy so basically if you want to be a phenomenologist start thinking about literally how you are perceiving phenomena now the second step is very important and follows directly the second step and i took this from don eyed who was taking it from wittgenstein He said, describe, do not explain. He lists this as the second step. And this also is a thing I think we might take for granted, but it's very important. As we're going about trying to analyze and think about how we think about stuff, period. We don't want to assign any sort of value judgments or conclusions as we're doing this, you know. We want to describe what we are experiencing but we do not want to we do not want to explain anything away, you know. For example, um 
if I see something in the corner of my eye, a shadow, move, and I think it's the ghost of my dead grandma really fast, and then I realize, oh, it was just a shadow cast by a mockingbird outside on the nearest branch, <laughs> I'm not going to then say to myself, oh, okay, it's just the bird shadow, you know? No, I'm going to take note of this entire phenomenon. I'm going to be equally interested in all of its facets. I'm incredibly interested in why my instinctual, immediate response was to think that it was the ghost of my dead grandmother. You understand what I'm saying? This phenomena is incredibly interesting. And I basically have just told you what Don I'd put as the third step to doing phenomenology. And he calls it horizontalization, which is basically... This idea that we want to horizontalize everything that we think we know already, you know. The thing like, or like the example I just described. You know, I'm not going to say, oh, I thought it was the ghost of my dead grandma because I miss my dead grandma or something or my grandma is dead even. Like, we're not going to explain away to ourselves. And in this way, the second and the third step are similar but different, you know. We're not going to say... To bring up the example of the frequency that makes people feel uneasy, for example. If I find out that I'm being exposed to this frequency and also know that I have been feeling this incredible sense of unease for as long as I've been exposed to this frequency, I'm not going to explain away to myself, oh, so that's what was happening, you know? Because right there, you're making a value judgment. You're saying you know that the frequency is the cause of your unease, you know? And this has been verified by science. And even if you know that this is true and feel confidently this is true, you still want to investigate the phenomena of this feeling of unease, you know. The unease is a distinct phenomena in and of itself. We want to investigate it. <laughs> and then the last step, which is a step I shouldn't even really be speaking about, but again, I'm just giving you the most broadest summary of how we do phenomenology the last step is to identify structural properties and this is what makes phenomenology essentially scientific you know because just as the natural scientist sits and observes things for so long eventually they have to start drawing some sort of conclusions even if they're simply hypotheses right and we have to do the same thing as phenomenologists. We have to start trying to identify structural properties in all these experiences, you know. Like if I, you know, I'm trying to think of an example. Eventually, if I bang my head on the wall so many times, I can, I can observe that when I bang my head on the wall, I feel the pain, you know. Eventually, I might want to draw some sort of conclusion that... Banging my head on the wall creates pain. <laughs> it seems so obvious. All these things seem so obvious. And it's part of, I think, the struggle of explaining to other people what phenomenology is. But I think that phenomenology is very transformative as a practice. The more you do it, the more you think this way... The more you recognize your own worldview, I think, becoming transformed in the face of this way of thinking, you know. For myself, it's been very transformative. Aaron asked earlier if it makes me happier. 
And personally, um, I think it has made me, I don't know if I would use the word happier. I feel more confident and content, I would say, than ever. But I won't lie to you either. Like, getting into phenomenology at first actually put me into a deep fucking depression. Because the more I thought this way, I started to think about how, like, everything is so incredibly... Not trivial, but I started... I couldn't stop thinking about how language is the only framework that I have to navigate any of these concepts. And thinking about it more and more made me become obsessed and I began to feel as if I exist in this prison in my own mind where all of these concepts that I use to talk about my experience of being in the world and how I feel in it and even how to do phenomenology or science or literally anything all of these concepts have been defined for me already like how can I have any sort of original thought and whatever original thought emerges from this process like is it really original is it pure you know because it still is coming out of this thick system that I had literally no say in establishing but eventually I got the fuck over it <laughs> cause what the fuck bitch and now I feel great <laughs> because I think in thinking about all this stuff too more the more you recognize that you are Bob the Builder of your own universe I think the more you feel confident in yourself and in the way that you can think about concepts presented to you by other people, you know. It's sort of a tricky subject um, because I feel like even in just saying what I just said, I'm, I feel apprehensive because I don't want to come across ever as one of these people that's like, consciousness creates reality because I absolutely don't believe that is true. I don't believe I really have much say in how I experience reality, you know. I can't turn off the wall that I'm looking at right now. I can't make it disappear. I can't experience this stuff differently, you know. But my understanding of this stuff really informs my experience of it. And this is why I say phenomenology, I think, is transformative. The more you do it, the more your worldview really does change you know but it's a process and I feel like it's a thing that requires time and effort which is part of what makes it so much more rewarding you know and I think that this is how all knowledge works period right and why we say that you must come to know things you don't just know a thing when someone tells it to you spontaneously you know like I like to think about crazy facts like fucking snapple cap facts or something like I remember the first time my grandma actually was the one who told me she told me that polar bears actually have I think she was wrong or maybe I'm remembering this incorrectly I think she told me that they have black fur but I believe they have like transparent fur or something and that it's really like the way the light reflects off their surroundings makes them appear white or something basically they don't have white fur I remember when she told me this I was like no way no way I was like, my mind was blown. I was like seven or something. And then I think it probably took me a while to integrate that knowledge into my worldview. You know, you have to accept it at a certain point. If you learn that polar bears are actually not white, 
like you might not i feel like you might know you you have to come to accept this knowledge eventually pretty quickly especially if you google it and it's like yeah all these scientists say that polar bears aren't white but to actually integrate that knowledge into your worldview i think takes like a very long time i think that's that's how it works for all knowledge and all philosophy and all opinions you know even a thing like self-confidence and i think phenomenology has i mean i'm already like sort of confident but phenomenology helped me feel more confident because in the past I had like zero confidence zero I was literally the person even as recently as high school which wasn't that long ago I was so afraid to even like open my fucking mouth because I was afraid of saying something stupid and I would always surround myself at school with the people that I perceived to be the most intelligent like I loved like I loved like following around the political science boys like they were my people that I aspired to be like because they were always like using all these terms and they read the world news and they were so intellectual to me and I wanted so badly to be like them and I felt this incredible self-consciousness whenever I was around them because I had no idea what the fuck they were talking about but as I began to gain my own confidence you know now I feel like I want to call everyone out even someone like them you know it's like where I'm not an expertise in the subject matter I still feel confident in navigating just about any like school of knowledge or thought just based on what I do with philosophy and phenomenology because philosophy is essentially the framework of anything how we think about anything so if you have a strong understanding of philosophy then really you are well equipped I think to engage with any subject even subject subjects you know literally nothing about because you know how knowledge is established by us. You know what I'm saying? This is a message of positivity. I'm trying to spread the word. I'm like a goddamn phenomenology missionary. Because I want everyone to feel as I do. That philosophy greatly enriches your life. And gives you um, a very justified, I think, sense of confidence. Anyway. I've been speaking now for 50 minutes. Um, if anybody has some things to say, uh, I would love to talk with you maybe for like five more minutes and then I need to get out of here. But thank you so much for listening to my dumb rant. And like I said, uh, there is a video version of everything I just said. Some people saw it. Um, I had to fix some few things, so I took it down, but I'll put it back up. If you want to see the weird poetic version of this with a floating apple... <laughs> Vibrock, but truth is dependent on a person that believes it. Of course, I'm talking about everything that isn't scientifically proven as factual. Well, I wouldn't agree with that. Um, Vibrock, like I said, I think truth is really a thing that, um, it's just a concept. It's not a perfect concept, and it simply means that two things are logically consistent you know and this logical consistency is established with language to use the age-old example in phenomenology club pretty sure it's been mentioned once in every phenomenology club related discussion ever the apple is red right is that a true statement assuming of course there is a red apple here with me 
Vibrock, do you think that if I have a red apple and I say that apple is red, is that a true statement? And if it is a true statement, then that means, and it's also true that red and the apple are just these concepts we came up with, then really we create truths, right? Even if you refuse to call the apple red or something and say that this isn't true for you, or it appears some other way, I mean, that would create a conflict. But if that if there's a red apple and the apple is red is a true statement, that really just is a great example of how truth is established by us you know red is identified as this color we experience the apple is identified as this object we experience if we agree that this is an apple and that we experience the apple is red then that's enough to say that the apple is red is a true statement Delilah, I just found out that my friend can't visualize anything more complicated than a colorless 2D shape in her mind, and I don't know how she made it this far in life. That's interesting. Do you feel like you can visualize very, like, detail-oriented images in your mind? Because I definitely can't. If I try to think of something, like, very visually specific, I can only see it maybe in, like, very hazy, hazy way. I can't, like, actually see an image you know I can't see an image at all brains are hella weird and I think that it's not a coincidence that neuroscience has adopted phenomenological language in a real way go on to PubMed and look up the word phenomenology you'll find all types of different neuroscientific papers being done especially in the most recent decade more and more because neuroscience is very much about creating a language for how we experience phenomena and how we can structure it in such a way that we can relate information to each other and to scientists you know I think that if Husserl was alive now he would be working closely with neuroscientists you know because essentially this is what he's trying to do create a language for how we experience phenomena and also why he distinctly criticized psychology which was becoming bigger and bigger around his time because he wanted to do what we said was step number two in how to do phenomenology describe do not explain and we all know that psychology really is trying to explain away the human experience you know and I think that it's many of the times when it does this it's like short-sighted you know psychology is very um prescriptive basically it exists to address problems and some of these problems are presumed you know it'll be like you know uh, just the language psychiatry and psychology uses for itself I think is like oftentimes just very unaware of itself and sounds stupid you know like blue makes you happy because scientists been the best and red makes you happy <laughs> red makes you sad because I don't know it's all stupid it's like it's like half-baked philosophy meets half-baked neuroscience, you know, which is why I'm not really a big fan of psychology and of psychiatry outside of like what might benefit people who like really need it and just, you know, benefits of like therapy, which is just like talking to a friend or something, except that friend knows nothing about you and won't judge you, but yeah, I'm not big on those, but uh, I think phenomenology and neuroscience are much more aligned as far as their goals and their methods. Alright, it's been 55 minutes. I'm going to get out of here. Thank you all for listening. Um, 
and I hope that was easy enough to explain. Like I said, I'll be uploading these all to this service that's going to put it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and stuff. I'm submitting it tonight, which is why I did this live stream thing. So if any of you are on Spotify and all that shit, great for you. I guess you'll be able to listen to this easier. Because I know YouTube is a nuisance for some people. Especially people have told me that they drive. And I forget if I said this before. But um, Phenomenology Club is only $1 a month to be a member. If you want, you get access to some materials that are not public. Because our website has a password. You get that password on our Patreon. For only $1 a month. Um... The Patreon link is www.patreon.com slash phenomenology club. And we also have all sorts of group activities. Our Discord is the hub of all of our activity. The Discord is actually very active. We've been active for over a year now. I think we're going on two years. And there's people in there literally all day long. We're international. We got people on different continents. So people are talking at all times. We got a voice chat in there. We'll hop on. We'll argue with each other. We got fights. We got drama. We got real life meetups. We got. We even have <laughs> improvised jam sessions in the voice chat. Which reminds me I need to upload those. Yo, we go crazy. Oh, and we got the book club. So if you're interested in any of that stuff, give me a fucking dollar. Or if you're really that broke, just hit me up. Like, or don't have a credit card or whatever. I'm very benevolent and generous. So whatever. Especially students. I understand. I don't want you to overdraw your card and get like a $35 penalty just because you're someone like me and don't know when your account's down to 50 cents. So hit me up. But anyway, thank you for listening. You're all great, and I fucking love you. Goodbye.